Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. Morning, Marjorie. How are you? Claire, I'm well. How are you this morning? Good. Sun's shining again after some rain yesterday, so I'm happy. I like it when the sun's out. At least we can get out in it twice a day now, which is a huge joy for me. We're all going to be so fit by the time summer comes. We'll all have our beach wear ready. It's funny. I was um, speaking to a few people who generally work at fairly sedentary jobs, and that's exactly what they were saying. They've never been fitter since they were teenagers. (laughs) I know. Um, and it feels like there's two class of people, you know, out running, which sounds terrible, but you can tell the ones who are sort of the runner who have been running for some time, although that that's not me necessarily, but for a little while anyway. And those who are just out trying to give it a go, you know, you sort of want to encourage everybody to just be like, good for you. <laughs> you know, I feel like I've had more sun this year than many years before, because I guess we're out a bit more, you know, and I wonder if I hope that'll be catching because I think it does so much for your sort of psyche to be outside, even for half an hour an hour a day. Okay, so well this week we've got a really lovely lineup of things to read and talk about. Um, we're going to start with a poem by Anne Hay, who is one of the Scottish Book Trust new writer recipients this year, and it's called The Coffee Ceremony. She's also one of our lead readers, so we're particularly delighted to use her poem. Thank you, Anne. And then we're going to move on to an essay by Leila Abdulayla, published by Canongate in a book called Imagine a Country, Ideas for a Better Future. And it's a collection of essays edited by Val McDermott and Joe Sharp. And then we're going to finish up with a poem by one of my favorite poets, Philip Levine, who was the Poet Laureate of the US in 2011 and has sadly passed away. But this poem is called What Work Is. It's one of my favorite poems of his. We'll have to choose some week. We'll have to do a poem that isn't one of my favorites and we can talk about why I don't like it. You're on choosing duty next week. (laughs) I I picked the poems for this week and I particularly picked What Work Is because I know how much you love it and because it went so well with Leila's piece. Do you want to start us off with reading Anne's poem first? The Coffee Ceremony Spoon beans from the jar designed like an owl's face Grind to powder The kettle bubbles Hear its hum fade to stillness like a meditation bell On the draining board, light Through the pane, water droplets on the broom Lilac buds Tip grains from grinder to cafetiere. Inhale the scent. A little water. Let it bloom. Pause 30 seconds. Fill to the line. Steep four minutes. Mix with the special spoon. Press the plunger down. The first sip. It's so seductive, isn't it? It's lovely. I love these sort of imperative poems. I love the voice in them because it allows you to be right there. You know, it's not telling us a story or a narrative. It's asking us to be the you in the poem, which is a different kind of tactic, but it it works, doesn't it? It draws us right in. And I love the little bits that I recognise in it, the kettle bubbling and then the silence afterwards and that inhale the saying, I absolutely do that when I'm making a cafetiere of coffee. And then that 
special spoon and then the having to be patient with the pressing the plunger down because if you do it too fast and you're too hurried it just goes everywhere. There is something about making a cafetiere of coffee which is really different than other forms of coffee. You know 10 years ago I would never have made a cafetiere of coffee because it would go cold before I could finish it. So it, it tells me something about the person if that makes sense that they've got that kind of time where they can actually sit and enjoy it while it's still hot. Yeah and I have an association with cafetiers of decadence of sort of holiday breakfast. That used to be one of my mother's day treats when the children were really little is that I would get to make a cafetiere of coffee and take it somewhere and drink it in peace and read a book. And the nice thing about cafetiere when I make them now is it means that I've got company. And for me, because we know Anne, so this is the danger of knowing the poet. I know Anne is a granny. I know that she's got that kind of time in a way that I'm forever rushing, rushing, rushing. So, you know, I, I think, gosh, someday I'll not only be able to make cafetiere, but I'll have time to grind the beans for each one. You know, that would be, as you say, decadent. And also there's something about this whole poem that feels decadent in terms of time, right? So it feels a really slow poem. It feels like she's got the time to let stand there and let the kettle bubble rather than doing what I normally do, which I'm sure what you do, which is wipe down the surfaces and work out, put things in the dishwasher, you know, forever multitasking. It feels like a waking up poem. There's something about it that feels like she's just observing the light on the draining board and lilac buds outside in a way that I just don't have time for in my life just now. And the reading of it makes me feel like I've just made that little bit of time, if you know what I mean. So the act of reading of it, feels like it's given me the gift that it articulates. And I think so much of the language is just so beautifully slow and peaceful and meditation and inhale and bloom. All these words for me just soothe me through. Yeah. Definitely felt like a little bit of a break, a coffee break. A lovely way to start the morning in some ways. And I you know, feel like I should pin it on the inside of my coffee cupboard so that I remember to take that little bit of time every morning. Shall we move on to Layla's piece, um, which we, we hope will link for you as it does for us to that first poem. Some countries have double the number of public holidays Scotland has. In Indonesia, where my family and I lived for a few years, there were 17 holidays, some of which were more than one day. As expected of a country in which almost 90% of the population are Muslims, there are two Eid holidays, Al-Fitar and Al-Adha, Islamic New Year, the birthday, Malid, of the Prophet Muhammad, and celebration of his night journey, the Isra and the Mirage. There was also Christmas, Easter and Good Friday. There was New Year's Day and Chinese New Year. That's now adding up to three New Year's Days per year. Hindu and Buddhist feast days were also public holidays, as well as Labor Day. I loved all these holidays, especially when they came midweek. My husband and children at home, the working week disrupted. There's no better way to celebrate diversity than by sharing each other's festivals. I would love Scotland to be the same. Fewer working days would enable us all to live better lives. If religious holidays are not to everyone's taste, then how about secular ones? Let's make Valentine's Day a public holiday, Burns Night, Guy Fawkes, Midsummer's Day, if Scotland gains independence, will there be an Independence Day holiday? Imagine. Holidays mean more rest and more togetherness, more precious time, more valuable hours. This great spinning world, let's slow it down. Let's have a break. A break from the internet would be nice too. A relief from the news. A recess from advertising. 
We do not need to shop 24-7. We do not need to know the news every hour. We do not need to be able to do every little thing on every single day of the week. For the sake of the climate, we can take time off from electricity, from heating, from traveling. Short pauses here and there to catch our breath, to hear the birds, to see the stars, to listen to each other, to feel idle. There's nothing wrong with occasional idleness. Staring into space, thinking thoughts or thinking nothing, swinging on a hammock, sitting gazing into the flames. Our fingers need a rest, as do our eyes, our minds. Shopping has become the new oppression, as has acquiring likes on social media, the endless expenses of self-improvement, and keeping up with the latest celebrities. All this comes at the price of more drudgery, more hours spent earning, more days at work. That sounds idyllic. First part of this essay makes me think of growing up in Washington, D.C. after we left Iran. I went to a really, really diverse high school. Lots of the kids were diplomat kids or kids from all over the world. And we got everybody's holidays off. And if we didn't get them off school, they certainly were celebrated in school. So I do recognize this idea that they obviously had in Indonesia as well of a celebration of everybody else which felt like a kind of acknowledgement and an underlining that we're all different in lovely ways rather than in ways that should make us concerned. That's really surprising for me to hear because I always think of America as being particularly stingy with its holidays. And I think in the UK, though, we've diluted that idea of celebrating these holidays a wee bit because now for a lot of them, you have the option to not take them on the day they fall. I mean, that's certainly true of sort of bank holidays and I think for a lot of people of the Easter holidays. The other thing that's different in the States is we just didn't get Easter holidays in the same way. You might get time off at Christmas and 4th of July, but they're very secular, the holidays, which is funny for a country that I think is actually in some ways more religious. You know, you get Memorial Day and President's Day and Labor Day and 4th of July, but you don't get Easter Monday. There's no such thing as Easter Monday in the States in terms of a holiday. So they're not tied in the same way to um, kind of feasts. But going back to the essay, the other thing that's interesting is it's almost like she's seen into the future that we are all getting a moment of idleness. But I'm not sure we're experiencing the kind of idleness that she's articulating here, because I think there's so much pressure to get online and be productive. And, you know, everyone's, they're not idle, they're working from home, which seems even more traumatic in many ways, because we're trying to teach children and keep up with the housework and then do the work. So there doesn't, actually for me, there seems to be far less moments of idleness than there would have been before lockdown. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth just noting that this was written long before the pandemic and long before any of the things that we're recognising in it. I think that's because our idleness at the moment is underlain the little bit of anxiety. So I think it's a different type of idleness than the idleness that she's talking about, which is a sort of a, a recharging of batteries. Shall we, shall we keep going? Because I think yeah. there's lots more to kind of dig into on this one. The four-day work week is not a fantasy. It has already been adopted in Germany and Denmark to some extent. Fewer working hours are better for our physical and mental health. The four-day work week would reduce pressure on the environment. A 2013 paper published in Global Environmental Change shows that countries with longer working hours consume more resources and emit more carbon. Reduced working hours, they suggest, would contribute to sustainability by decreasing the environmental intensity of consumption patterns. Research by the Trade Union Congress 
has found that UK full-time staff work almost two hours more than the EU weekly average. Yet staff in Denmark, who worked fewer hours, were more productive. Resting more and having adequate time for recreation improves the quality of the work we produce. By working fewer hours, we boost our output instead of reducing it. Sadly, the reality in Britain is that many people are working longer hours or the same hours for less pay, working harder to become poorer, working more to end up with less. Writing in The Conversation, economist David Spencer says, the continued force of consumerism has acted as a prop to the work ethic. Advertising and product innovation have created a culture where longer hours have been accepted as normal, even while they have inhibited the freedom of workers to live well. More public holidays, religious, secular or national. A reduction in the working week, time off from the internet, from the media, from travel and energy consumption. would reduce carbon footprint and give us more of what really matters. Well, I mean, we certainly know that the lockdown has changed the environment. So that's, you know, she's absolutely dead right about that. Yeah. And I think also what will be interesting to see is how work patterns change. I know a lot of people are working from home in jobs where they previously asked if they could do some home working and were told it wasn't possible because their job simply couldn't be done from home. And I wonder if it'll signal the end of these massive offices whether companies will go to using smaller places where people do still come to work, but they, they're not in work five days a week. I just think it'll sh- fundamentally shift the way we think about lots of things. And as a complete aside, all this concern about the burqa, do we allow women to wear burqas and, and France refusing to allow women and making it illegal? You know, suddenly as you go out, we're basically all wearing a burqa, right? If it's cold, we've got a hat on and a face mask and, and all we can see are people's eyes. And so I, I think, you know, whatever you think about the burqa, bottom line is the way that we're all attired now must make us rethink our kind of perceptions of other people and, and kind of the things that we that underpin our responses to other people. So yeah, I, I wonder too, in that same way that when people have said, or our employers have said, well, you can't work at home. Well, actually you can, and we have. And so now I wonder if we should just rethink the way forward. Just going back to what you were saying about covering faces, I saw a lovely interview the other day with a care home assistant who was having to wear PPE and she was being asked if that was particularly difficult working with elderly residents in the care home because they couldn't see her face. And she was saying, well, we've all been practicing smiling with our eyes. And I just thought that was a a lovely idea. And maybe we should all be practicing smiling with our eyes. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I wanted to pick up on, and Layla's essay, which brings up for me is this idea of immigrants. Well, and I come from an immigrant family, have a completely different perception of work. It's absolutely okay to kill yourself and work incredibly long hours, two or three jobs to get a leg up in the U.S., and my experience of being an immigrant is definitely an American one. And I wonder too whether it's more common in the US for people to work two or three jobs to make ends meet. I don't know, because I've been so lucky in the UK to never have to do that. But, you know, it's really common for people to work not just a 40 hour week, but an 80 hour week just to make ends meet, to try and save a bit of money to put a kid through school or, or to pay your health insurance or whatever it is. So while I, I love this idyllic suggestion of Layla's that we all work less, I'd love to see that ruled out. 
I don't know how it would work in practice because I think I can't see that. I'd love for that to change, but I, I can't see it changing. I don't know if you can. I think we become very used to what we become used to. And I think adopting the approach that is outlined would require us to take a real stock of the things we wanted in life and things that were important and cut down on the shopping and spend less on travel. And I think there has to be a desire to do that before the four day week could kick in. But I've seen quite a lot of comments on Twitter during this period where people have said, I'm so much happier working less and earning a bit less and having more time at home. I mean, I I absolutely agree. But my worry about that is it feels a very middle class thing to say. So yes, of course, if you're working and you're making X, then 80% of X you can live on when you're not shopping so much. But if you're working three jobs to make X and you're working zero hour contracts, so you don't have insurance, you don't have, in the States, you don't have health insurance, and you're barely struggling to make ends meet, you know, it just seems like it's such a dream to get to work less, to have less, because actually in lots of cases, people don't have the capacity to have less. So yes, I mean, yes, it would be great to have a four-day work week. I'm all for it. But what, what worries me is that what isn't captured here is the reality of the working life for so many people. And it's not just people working three jobs in the States, it's immigrant families who make the decision to send someone abroad to work their tail off to pay for whatever it is at home, which is something my dad did when he was a young man, you know, came to the US and worked a number of jobs while at university and sent the money home. So this idea of what we want as a society doesn't capture a huge bank of people or their experience. And I don't know how we fix that, you know, which is a much bigger question, I think. And it's not about consumerism there. You know, if you talk to my dad about what he bought in those first few years, the very first thing he bought was a pair of shoes. That was only when his other pair of shoes wore out. And he felt guilty, he said, about buying those shoes because actually he knew that that money could could have done for his family at home. So, you know, there is inherent in this a kind of a particular viewpoint, which I don't blame Leila for. It's certainly my viewpoint in terms of the way I live my life, but I, wor- I worry that it leaves a lot of people out. And it's bound up in that whole idea and discussion that's happening at the moment around things like you know, a universal basic income and, you know, what are the real jobs we should be valuing in society in terms of what they're paid Yeah. um, that I think the pandemic has brought into sharp focus. And I think bound into this whole discussion of a four-day working week is a real analysis and reassessment of what we pay people for the work that they do. Shall we have a look at Philip Levine's poem, What Work Is? Yeah, let's do that. He's someone I have followed for years, and partly that's because he really looks to his Detroit roots and the working class experience of working in the factories, the car factories there in the 50s and 60s. And this poem is no exception. I think part of the reason he got um, known or known so well is because he was giving voice to these, these experiences. It's called What Work Is. We stand in the rain in a long line, waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is, although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting, shifting one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision, until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe ten paces. You rub your glasses with your fingers, and of course, it's someone else's brother, narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch, 
the grin that does not hide the stubbornness, the sad refusal to give in to rain, to the hours of wasted waiting, to the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not hiring today, for any reason he wants. You love your brother. Now suddenly you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you or behind or ahead, because he's home trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac so he can get up before noon to study his German, works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst music ever invented. How long has it been since you told him you loved him, held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide and said those words and maybe kissed his cheek? You've never done something so simple, so obvious, not because you're too young or too dumb, not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man, no, just because you don't know what work is. I love this description of work, which I'm not even sure what it is by the end of the poem. I don't know about you. It seems a description of not working. It feels a description of wanting to work, which is, of course, a problem in the Depression or at the time of this writing, I guess, people were being laid off or looking for work. So that wish to be engaged. So it's the opposite in many ways of Layla's essay. It's that wish to be engaged in something practical and useful, even though it doesn't seem like something that you'd want to be necessarily want to do. There's a dignity in having something to do. I mean, for me, that is the whole essence of that, is the desire to do something that you know you're not going to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, this this poem is just heavy with the expectation on the person standing in the queue's shoulder. There's a resignation there as well. Like he knows he's going to stand in the rain and wait and be told, nah. I often think of the kind of migrant workers in California who, in the southern part, there are obviously corners where farm workers will pick up ad hoc workers for the day. It's the saddest thing if you drive by and you'll see a, a line of men standing on a corner for no reason. And they're standing there waiting, hoping that a farm owner or whoever it is will come along and say, okay, we need six today. And it makes me think of this poem every time I see that, because I think, yeah, it's the same thing. It's people waiting to do something that isn't even probably very dignified when they do it. But it's just that need to feed some, you know, feed family, presumably, and also to have somewhere to be. What I love about this poem, apart from letting us into that experience, which many of us won't have had, is that we also get into that relationship with his brother. And the whole thing of Wagner is brilliant here, isn't it? For me, anyway. Yeah, and I think that helps you read the poem without just being thoroughly depressed by the end of it, because it is a really sad description of the life that this person has found themselves living. And then that there is the joy of the relationship with the brother, which for me just kind of lifts it enough for me to take in the rest of it, if that makes sense. I feel that that part of it for me is quite sad, actually. I feel that he isn't connected with his, I mean, obviously loves his brother. And I don't know about you, but you know, that, that happens in life. You'll suddenly see someone and think, be overwhelmed by how you feel about them, which is usually someone in your immediate family. But there's a sadness there that he realizes he hasn't articulated it. But what I love about the brother in this poem is that he likes Wagner. That that idea that people can have secret lives that you wouldn't expect. You know, that someone who works in a Cadillac factory during the day is studying German and loves opera. You know, and of course that's true. But it's not the way that we see people. We see people as so one-dimensional. For me, though, that it's without the experience or the situation of standing in that line that love for his brother 
might not have overwhelmed him. So he might have missed that. And that's the positive aspect of it for me is that, you know, although it's a depressing, boring, pointless exercise, there's this little gift of that recognition you talked about a second ago for his brother that perhaps wouldn't have come to him if he hadn't have gone through the exercise of standing in the line. And it goes back to that idea that Layla was saying in her essay about idleness. And hers is a different kind of idleness that she's describing for sure. But I think you have those moments in idleness, you know, a little epiphanies that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And of course, Layla's advocating them so that we have epiphanies about other things. But I think there is an epiphany here. And it comes from a moment of idleness that you have nothing else to do. So you start seeing other things in what's in front of you. And that helps you kind of recognize something that you maybe didn't before. One of the things I'm not sure about is the end. Yeah, I've never been sure what that means. You know, I, I get that he's not a man who's frightened to cry or frightened to tell his brother that he loves him, but he hasn't because he doesn't know what work is. I'm not sure what that means really, because I don't know that if he did know what work is, if he was a person who had a regular job and also worked at the Cadillac factory or whatever it is, would he be more in a position to tell his brother he loved him? I don't know. I don't think so. Is it a kind of expectation of how his life would be different, that he'd be more capable to, of doing something if he only had a job? I think he's wrong about that, but I don't know if that's what he's saying there. And does anyone really know what work is? You know what work is for you. You know what your experience of work is. But it just makes me think that no one can imagine anyone else's work, anyone else's situation. For me, it feels like him saying the grass is greener. You know, if I only had a job, then it would free me up. Or if I only had regular employment or whatever it is he wants to describe as work, um, then I would be in a position to free up and do this thing, which is to notice my brother. And I actually think that's just not true in life. You know, we always think if only I had x then i would be able to do y but i think in practice i don't know about you but that's just not how it's worked in my life i used to think well if only i could stop working in law then i would be able to whatever and while that's somewhat true in terms of time we are who we are really and we make things certain things a priority and i'm not sure how much that changes really you know if you think about how our lives have changed when we're in this lockdown you know of course they've changed and of course we have time to think about our perspectives but has the way we behave towards other people really shifted. I don't know if it has for you. I'm not sure it has, really. I also wondered if he doesn't know what work is because he stood in that line day after day after day after day and actually never been picked. Yeah, or that feels like the work. You know, the work for yeah. in the poem doesn't feel like the job at the Cadillac or the job at Ford. It feels like getting up, getting dressed and going and standing in a line. As pointless as that is, that's the work. You know, which I guess for me is the whole point of the poem, that there's a dignity in whatever we're doing, even if it seems pointless or in terms of economics or in terms of its impact on others. There's a dignity in getting up and feeding your kids every morning or getting up and feeding yourself every morning or whatever it is you do, there's a dignity in it. And maybe that's why I've always loved this poem, because there were years where I wasn't working outside the home and I was just feeding children and sorting out things. And I remember thinking the laundry was just the worst endless cycle. You know, people would just, and the same with food, right? <laughs> There's literally never ending. You wash it, you clean it, they put it on, they, it goes back in the basket, you wash it again. And I'm thinking, God, at least, you know, in the world of work, you do a project and it's finished. And I think that's probably why I love this poem, because there's a dignity in just doing it over and over again. And a value that goes beyond cash and money at the end of the day. He's not being paid to stand in this line because he doesn't get picked. But there is still that value. And I think that's, I mean, when we were talking earlier about Layla's essay, that's the worry for me about that essay, which isn't a worry, but it feels like there's a really different experience of idleness here. That's the kind of gap. 
I think, between those of us who don't have to worry or worry a bit less about maybe eating differently or not shopping in a particular shop or whatever, when we have less to do than those who are literally impacted when they can't go to work in terms of what, whether they get to eat at all, whether they have health care. And that's been one of the concerns in the States. You know, when I was talking to my parents about it yesterday, you know, when people are let go from their jobs, you know, at least in the UK, we have health cover. So it doesn't stop you going to the hospital. Whereas in the US, if, you, if you're let go from your job, you don't have health care. What happens when you get ill? You know, what happens when you get COVID? You know, there's a huge gap there. And it's a kind of concern that we just don't understand in this country. So, you know, I do feel like there's a whole category of people which is about to grow exponentially, whose experiences we are not capturing in this, wouldn't it be nice to slow down? And my worry, and it's even a worry that we have at Open Book, is that when we get back, people will be working even harder to try and make up for that because everyone will have eaten through their savings and you have a concern. So my worry is that we will not flip into kind of a bit more idleness, that we'll flip into overdrive trying to make up for this period. So again, super pessimistic. I'm not sure what the answer is, (laughs) but it's certainly fleshed out in the difference between the two, isn't it? Maybe we should just go back to Anne's poem. Have a cup of coffee (laughs) really slowly every morning and that can be your idleness. Well, shall we just chat a little bit about some of the feedback we've had this week for our groups and online? I thought it was particularly lovely to see a tweet by Karen Lord saying she enjoyed listening to us talk about her essay at sea. And then I suddenly thought, what did we say? (laughs) That was exactly my response. It made me think... Did we say? Did we say anything we shouldn't have? I know, and I I was thinking that as we were talking about Layla's essay, but I hope that she'll realise that we are just using it as a as a kind of jumping off point from for other discussions. So, but yeah, it was really lovely to hear her say that she enjoyed hearing us chat about it. I really liked uh, one of the comments that came in this week that someone saves us up and to take on their daily walk. Um, and someone else was telling us that they are enjoying listening to the podcast while they're cleaning their house. So it's really lovely to imagine yourself in the ears of someone doing something, listening along to our conversation. Um, we had a group this week use Holub's poem, The Door, when we were, one of the poems we didn't read but had put up online. It was really lovely. They were saying they'd read the poem about doors and then discussed whether opening a door was similar to opening a book, which is a really nice metaphor, kind of nice comparison. One of our telephone group conversations that came back to us this week was an update that explained that they'd had a lovely chat, the two people on the call, about what one of them, who was 12 years old on VE Day, uh, remembered about the celebrations that day. In the context of the line in the poem that they were reading, they talked about having time now to stand and stare. One of the things that's come back this week is your discussion of a shivery bite. You know, lots of feedback directly to me saying, oh, I love the bit about the shivery bite. I remember my gran or my mum or whatever. And someone has said that in Aberdeen, that was called an Aberdeen roll, which is um, designed to fit in a fisherman's pocket and be warm when they went out in the morning. And uh, Is that true of Cornish pasties? Are they the same? I think it's the same idea, but the Aberdeen rolls have an inordinately high fat content. <laughs> I love um, it. I think part of the reason for that was because the hot fat stayed hotter longer Mm -hmm. and the shape of them it's kind of a circular sort of flat shape you pop it in your pocket and it it stays warm and keeps you warm all morning till it's time to eat it yeah so well i'm gonna have to take up uh, maybe what i'll do is every time i go to the sea i'll take a different kind of shivery bite if you can if you can all tell me what your shivery bite was we'll try them all out and then i can report back Our groups have been coming back online this week as well. We 
trained six more shared reading lead readers on using Zoom. We're working with our current band of 75 week by week to get more and more people used to familiar with using Zoom so that we can bring back as many of our groups online as possible. And I think looking at the numbers for next week, we've got 12 groups running including uh, our Brora group, our Eyemouth group and our Aberdeen group and lots more. And I think the last thing I wanted to mention was a special shout out to one of our lead readers, Sue, who got our newsletter to South Africa this week. She has family there and uh, she sent it off, off to them to read there. Yeah, we can't wait to see where it gets to next week. I think that's all we have to report for this week. Thanks very much again for having us in your ears and we're looking forward to being with you again soon. 